why is 12 the magic number when it comes to sales? And who is Josh from PwC? This is the Leeds Business Podcast, and you're your host, Phil Fraser. I'm a business sounding board. Think somewhere between a business coach and a business mentor. If you're a business owner and you're feeling the pain and confusion of being lowly at the top, give me a call. I can help remove the stress and lack of clarity that you're feeling comes with running your business. So, in this week's episode, we speak to Zandra Moore, CEO of Pan Intelligence. Zandra shares with us a super cheap, really effective marketing tactic that she used and that can get your business noticed. The triggers that brought about a successful Series A funding round, why she didn't change her business card when she was promoted to CEO, the key role that an incubator played in her journey, and the need for support and structures for female founders. Plus, there's a great how-to when it comes to taking a business step you're afraid of. So, to make sure you never miss out on every episode of the Leeds Business Podcast, sign up to our priority list at www.leedsbusinesspodcast.com. Everyone that signs up gets a free gift to help their business. So, let's get into what is a really engaging and compelling interview. So, today's guest is CEO of Pan Intelligence, Sandra Moore. Good afternoon, Sandra. Good afternoon, Phil. How are you? I'm fantastic. Great to have you on. Great to have you on. So, let's start um, let's start the business journey at Pan Credit. So, give us a brief overview of how you got to Pan Credit. Uh, yeah, so I was um, I found myself with two children, um, and it's quite difficult when you've been a sort of sales director of software businesses and, and going back into employment with, with two young children and, and wanting to strike that balance. And you know, somebody in the family kind of does at some point um, when you've got a young family. So I decided to set up my first business, which was a sales consultancy, helping other startup software businesses get their go-to-market proposition, their first customers, all that kind of stuff. And Pan Credit, I actually put a pin in a map. Um, because my children's nursery was um, around the corner from my house. Um, I lived in Carvey at the time, a place called Ackley Bridge. And, um, and I put it in a map and I said, well, where are the software vendors within a five-mile radius of my house? Because if I need to go back and pick the kids up from nursery then. Um, and Pan Credit was literally two miles up the road, literally pinning the map. And I went on to LinkedIn and I contacted the Peter Constance. I did a bit of research on him. He was the CEO at the time. And I found out that he was a... Um, they were the sponsor of Jamie Peacock, who is obviously was the captain of Leeds Rhinos, the player sponsor. And I was a trustee for Leeds Rugby Foundation at the time. So I sat as, you know, I was on the board of the, of the Leeds Rugby Foundation. I was like, oh, there's something in common here. And, you know, we know personalization is the key to getting people's attention, don't we? So, um, so I sent him a LinkedIn message. This is very early in the days of LinkedIn. We're going back to something like 2010 when LinkedIn was really only starting to be used as an outreach tool. Um, and he replied and he went, yeah, sure, come in and have a coffee. Uh, tell me what you do. Um, and we had a chat and he brought in another one of the directors and they told me they had this guide sat in the corner of a room building this bit of tech that they were selling to their banking customers. And they thought they could probably sell it outside of their core market. And would, would I fancy giving that a go? So that was, that was, you know, one of my first clients in my SaaS consultancy business. And I worked with them for three years as a client first. And then, you know, they persuaded me that they'd like me to get more involved. And then the opportunity to buy the IP came up. So yeah, they were a client first <laughs> through my, through my consultancy business. Yeah. It's, it's funny you should mention Jamie Peacock. He is going to be a guest on the show in about three weeks' time. So thanks for the plug there, Zandra. So keep an eye out for Jamie's coming on shortly. Um, okay, so you, so did you actually work for Pan Credit or were you still consulting for them at the time? Uh, so I consulted for them until we agreed to do the management buyout. And then in order to kind of manage that, transaction I then sort of became employed to then do the management buyout if that makes sense there was a period where I was um employed mm. to then become become a part of the management team that acquired the IP so myself and Ken and one of the other then directors of Pan Credit um he was the financial controller uh, Mike Cripps um we then led the the management buyout of of uh, Pan Intelligence from the business as they sold their business to Equinity, Big Share, Richard Charles City. We were this kind of loss-making, scrappy team of six people building, um, uh, you know, a, a piece of tech that, frankly, the rest of the business didn't quite understand. They were building, you know, they were building this very large legacy ERP system for lending to banks, um, which was sort of being hand-cranked behind the scenes because it's like 25 years old. And we were sort of, you know, modern tech, data analytics, and 
Um, they just didn't quite, it just didn't quite sit together whilst it worked. Te- technically, the, the teams are very different and the skills in the team. So the management buyout works really well for both parties and, and really sort of helped the transaction um, for, for, for the pan credit business. Um, and then, yeah, we, we literally um, ran a process. We um, uh, got the IP valued um, by Baker Tilly. Uh, and then found um, some some friends and family that sort of knew me and and Mike and uh, and the team uh, to put some cash in to give us some cash flow and um, carried the server across the car park and squatted in somebody else's office for three months whilst we tried to work out what we'd done, <laughs> which was the start. Okay, so point. let's um, let's just ro- let's just roll back slightly there. So yeah, people talk about MBOs and people talk about you know spin outs and stuff like that. How did Talk us through the process. Was was it? Did somebody sort of sit down and go, "Hey, Zandra, I've got this great idea. Should we buy the IP and set up the business?" Yeah. How, how did the concept start, and and how what did the process look like? Yeah. So Ken, myself, and Mike were really running this this kind of little uh, product inside a bigger company, and we were made aware, Ken and myself, that the business was for sale. And we'd already had conversations on long car journeys going to see prospects about if we could buy this IP, would we? Because we both could see the opportunity and the potential. And we'd already started selling it outside the banking sector. So we just knew we had something that the rest of the market wasn't providing. Um, And we said, well, we know that they don't, we, we weren't generating a lot of revenue. We're still loss making. We weren't what, the, you know, it wasn't what the business was selling to the market, Pan Intelligence. They were selling the Pan Credit business, and uh, we were barely aligned on their PL, really. So, so we knew there was a sort of an undervalued um, piece of technology. So, we'd had the conversations on the long car journeys about if we had an opportunity, would we? And then it was Mike, who is a CFO, who we spoke to, who said, Well, well, why don't we just get, you know, the IP valued? And because that's going to be the, the crux of it, really. Do, you know, are they happy to let us buy it off them? For an amount of money that we we think it's worth, so um, and that was it. It wasn't. It really wasn't much more complicated. Baker Tilly came and valued the IP, and then as Pan Credit got sold, as part of that, we 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 were given we cheapened out the staff, and we we ran the process with Eversheds and to to kind of get the get the business kind of spun out. Um, uh, and I wasn't as heavily involved as Mike was in that process because he was also an exiting director of the Pan Credit business. So. Um, Whereas the, the the round that we did for raising growth capital and bringing the private equity was was something I led. So, um, but it was pretty straightforward. Um, it wasn't a difficult process for us at that stage. So, what what uh, sort of timeline? When when are we talking about then? Uh, twenty fourteen. So, right. so um, tw- it was March twenty fourteen when we. Mm-hmm. Okay, so twenty fourteen. So, so in effect, you're. At- you're a startup with a little bit of headwind, so it wasn't for a blank piece of paper. Did you have a, Did you have a business plan, or was it just like, "Hey, we've got an idea. Let's see where it rolls." Yeah, we did have a business plan, but it was written in Word, and it was I wouldn't say it was as comprehensive. And we didn't have a you know we had a um, we didn't have a model that we run our business on now. You know, um, um, the model that we run our business on is incredibly. Um, detailed at the time uh we had about two hundred thousand pounds worth of revenue but most of it was consultancy it wasn't mainly like it wasn't licensing really um we'd done a lot of consulting to deliver our our product into to, to a few of our early customers um so we had some revenue we had some customers about 10 customers and so it wasn't you know we, we we're certainly you know very much it was a risk and we also had um the product was built in something called Flash, which uh, for anybody who's got any tech uh, knowledge will know. I remember very Flash. I remember Flash. End of, <laughs> end of life by Adobe. And we knew we had to completely rewrite the platform. So we had this kind of mountain to climb anyway. We knew what we'd built was the right solution to the problem. We just now needed to build it in the right tech. So right. um so that's that's sort of where we started. So our biggest problem was, can we just get ourselves established? Because we'd been sat in a bigger organisation that had HR systems, CRM systems, banks. Uh, it took us three months to set up a bank account. And, you know, we just had the basics in the first six months. So the business plan's a business plan, but actually you've just got to get yourself operational so you can still bill the clients that you've got and still deliver the services to the customers and still receive phone calls. So that felt like the first six months of just actually almost like starting again. <laughs> like it really yeah. was a start at that point. Um, and then after that, it became much more about um, rebuilding the platform and winning, you know, winning um, more customers 
Um, but the first three years were, were very much about just trying to get some traction and get some operational um, vigor in the business because we were we had none. <laughs> okay, okay. So, so you're, so you're, a re- you're a real startup, and you have to rebuild what you bought anyway. Um, yeah. <laughs> couple, of, couple, couple of questions from that then. Um, how did it feel going from sort of you know employed in a proper big company to write this what three four five us in a rented office? Here we go. Because I know lo- lots of people have that sort of. Some people have got that feeling inside of them they'd love to do it, and so we will think, "I can't do it." How how did that sort of startup feel like? What have we done? Because <laughs> 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 I'd, I'd I'd literally emptied my savings to buy the IP, and um, I knew I always knew I wanted. I'd, I'd helped a lot of startups kind of grow and exit and be successful in a in a sales role, generate kind of revenues help them to become SaaS when SaaS wasn't even a word when it was cloud or online. <laughs> um, so I, I kind of knew that this is where I wanted to be. At the time, it wasn't about being a CEO, actually. It was about you know having a piece of it, having being invested in the business where I could see that I could get, you know, uh, return for that input. That was where my focus was, being a shareholder, having a stake in it, investing into something. And at the time, I wasn't the CEO. At the time, I was a sales and marketing director. I was the title. And... Um, my uh, the CFO Mike um, became MD, managing director. So we had quite classic British titles. We're now very um, American in our titles in the business, uh, but at the time that's where we were. So that's so it felt it felt like quite a big step for me, having not you know whilst I'd set up a business before it was a consulting business, um, but I knew I wanted to be and I wanted to grow a software company. That's what I knew how to do, and I was helping other people do that. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, it was just super hard getting some of the basics done, like getting a bank account. It was ridiculously hard to get a bank account up and running. Um, you take for granted all the things when you're in an organization operationally that just exist to make your day job easy, you know, just getting email working and just receiving phone calls. And, you know, um, there was just so many basics that just felt a lot harder and took a lot longer than we anticipated um, before we could really go out and start really peddling, <laughs> peddling the market. Um so yeah, it did feel like a proper startup. But uh, the one thing that did um, we did struggle with was hiring because when you're that small, it's super high, hard to attract talent. Those first sales hires, when I was the only salesperson and hiring my first salesperson to team, trust me, you know, <laughs> um, when you don't have that kind of traction or referenceability in the market, or you know, you're really an unknown entity and you're literally squatting in a room that can probably accommodate six people and there's already six of you in it, and you're asking someone else to sit in the same office, it's hard. So hiring is super hard at that stage, and and you do kind of lean in on people that you know and in your networks, and you know that's why so many people end up hiring sort of friends and family, don't they? And so at this stage, is the only people that will believe that they can do it. Yeah, I remember it was funny you mentioned that. I remember our our first hire. Um, we had it. We had an office over a sandwich shop, and I thought I can't I can't bring somebody here. So I went to my old ad agency that I used to work at and used their offices and just said, oh, this is our ad agency. We're just using their offices to interview. <laughs> um, I'm conscious, actually, we've not mentioned, and, and you have to do this in very simple terms because we have a simplistic audience, what okay. do pan intelligence do? Come on, really simplify it for us. I will do. Um, so most businesses will use something for reporting on what goes on in their organisation. They might use... Um, a data visualization tool like a dashboard. They might have heard of things like Power BI or Tableau, things like that. Um, and they've probably also used things like reporting where you get a PDF in your inbox on a Monday morning telling you what's happened in the last week. And if you're really excited by AI, you may be starting to think about prediction and, you know, how do I predict outcomes from data? And all of those things are about data, essentially, and the data you've got in your organization. And what our software does is it allows people to visualize the data in their organization easily for themselves, report on it, send information out to other people about what's happening in PDF or different formats reports, and also predict outcomes from data. And our customers are not necessarily businesses directly, our customers are software vendors that are already doing the job of collecting all of that data and providing some software into their business. We get we become their reporting engine. So a lot of people don't know that they're users. We're always white labeled and in somebody else's tech. So we're tech inside tech. <laughs> so B2B2B. Um, and therefore we're always part of somebody else's product, doing things like helping them to see their data more easily, produce reports or receive predictions. I hope that's okay. <laughs> That makes a lot of sense. That makes a lot of sense. Uh, you know, step up from Excel then. 
Just, yeah, yeah. I'm trying to get people off Excel if we can. There's no data yeah. security in Excel. Fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> Fantastic. Fantastic. Okay, so you've got this brand new startup. There's six months trying to get everything set up and get going. How did you go? I mean, obviously, that's quite, I assume that's quite a big tech sell. How did you go out and sell this? How did you start off? So I'm quite old school and it's always worked for me. Um, so I've always been a saleswoman. Um, that's what I've done. Um, I'm, a, I'm a queen hustler. I love it. It's my favorite part of what I do every day and still very much embedded in the sales engine in this business. Um, and do you know what? It's, it's classic stuff. It's understand who your ideal customer is. Be ruthless in making sure you're only speaking to people that fits that profile. And do your work on the research. So you spend your time. Get, it used to be Dun & Bradstreet that we used. I get a list of all the companies in the UK in a particular sector with a certain turnover and a certain number of employees. And then I'd use LinkedIn to find out who the people I should be speaking to. And I used to write them letters, literally write them letters. Um, I'd write them a letter, personalize, explaining what we do, referencing somebody like them that we worked with. So I'd always go after the same sector where we had referenceability. And then it's just pick up the phone until they find the answer. And you're sending them a letter, then you send them a second letter. And when you send them a letter with a stamp on it and a handwritten envelope, people tend to remember it. Um, and when you're very clear about who the people you want to win as business, you could be quite focused about it. And to be honest with you, it's super cheap to do. It takes a bit of time. Um, it gets noticed. And if you do the follow-up, and we have this magic number, 12, which you don't give up, 12 times. You have to try and call someone and contact them 12 times before you give up. If you haven't tried 12 times, you're not tired enough. So... That's a classic old school way of outreach. And that's how I've always worked. And it's how our team work here still. I mean, we do some more sophisticated stuff these days, but actually the stuff that works is that personalized approach to an ideal customer that you know is who you want to win because they're a good fit for you. So that's how we started and still do it now. <laughs> Fantastic. And, and, and I, I've actually used personalized handwritten letters before. And, you know, we talk about open rates in newsletters and mailers and stuff like that. The open rate on a letter is, just, is almost 100%, isn't it? Because you know you get your post in the morning and and you go to bill 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 mailer mailer handwritten letter it's the first thing you open isn't it it's just logical it is, it is. and I think the challenge challenge in today's economy is people are in their offices as much as they used to be but actually people are back more now so if you do something people uh, things to people's offices they are more likely to receive them maybe a week after you've actually got it through the door but they will usually find their way into and people actually forward them onto people's home addresses now i've noticed as well so it's interesting yeah fantastic fantastic so okay so you've sent out all these mailers out and and you've got some traction going sort of what's what, what was sort of like the next sort of major landmark in the growth of the business from there so um one of our customers um end users was using sage sage 200 and uh, it's quite a big legacy ERP system. And they said, you know, what we really want is just an out-of-the-box set of reports that we can use. And they introduced us to a reseller that they were working with, which were based down the road, literally around the corner, uh, called IMS. They've, they've sold to another company now. Um, and I went to see him and he said, you know what, if you built something out of the box, you could sell it through every reseller in, um, in the Sage channel uh, as an add-on to the Sage product because what they've got is, frankly, um, no good. Nobody can do anything with it. And people are very, an ERP system like Sage, once it's embedded in your business, quite hard to unwind because it's running all of your kind of financials and orders and invoicing. So we did, we struck up a partnership with Sage. Um, we, over the, uh, the course of a couple of um, years, we onboarded over 30 reseller partners and those resellers took our pre-configured solution for that product out to market. And we did a revenue share, which is a really great way to scale the sales organization when there's like six or seven of you, because actually you've suddenly got, you know, two or three salespeople in 30 resellers. And all you're doing is sales training them on your products, giving them a proposition that they make enough money on because then let's face it, they're commission, um, orientated, um, organizations. Um, and that really helps us to scale our sales operation without investing too heavily in an internal team. So we used a kind of channel model to accelerate our, our revenue growth without having to invest in, in direct sales. We're 100% direct sales now, but that's how we started. And I'd done that with another couple of organizations, but the Sage channel was our biggest channel. And then we went and did that with other companies. We found other organizations where we pre-configured solutions. It was like a sell-through, um, but we're still kind of badged as there as their product, um, if that makes sense. So advanced computer software yeah. is probably one of the largest independent software access, another very large independent software company, um, is how we worked with all of them. 
And we won an and, award. And that was a landmark. When, they, when, when Sage went, you're great. We love you guys. And we won an award. our first award. And we got very giddy. I think it was in uh, 20, like 2015 or 2016. We won our first, first award as an independent company. And it's a Sage Award. So, yeah. Fantastic. So was that was that an opportunity or was that a plan? Uh, so I'd always intended to build a channel model when we spun the business out because I knew how to do that. I also knew we didn't have the cash runway to suddenly build a sales team of five, six, seven people. And we were also replatforming the product at the same time. And frankly, the Sage product was pretty legacy. So the fact that we were replatforming weren't exactly leading edge tech, they were quite forgiving of because <laughs> what we had was still way ahead of what they had. So it's always about, you know, perspective and frames of reference, isn't it? So to them, we were modern tech, but if I'd have gone out to the SaaS community at the time, they'd have gone your legacy, right? So you've just got to know where you fit in the market. And um, so we modernized their platform enough um, whilst it gave us the time to rebuild, um, which which worked. It worked for, it worked for us all. Um, and it also just got us to an ARR that uh, frankly meant that when we needed to go and raise money, because we knew we needed to, there was, there was no question that we'd hit that point where we'd need to raise some growth capital, um, that there would be a better <laughs> a better business <laughs> around revenue to 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 get get people excited by. So yeah. Okay, so you mentioned <laughs> raise, raising capital. Um, before we talk about that, because I know lots of people are interested in in how you do it, how you go about it, what it's what it's like. Um, I need to tell our listeners all about the Leeds Business Podcast Fair Deal. The Leeds Business Podcast Fair Deal has two parts to it. Uh, my side of the deal is I bring you brilliant, inspirational, and fascinating business leaders every week, free of charge, people like Zandra. Um, and your side of the deal has two parts to it, Mr. Lister or Mrs. Listener. Uh, side number one, or part number one, is you have to recommend this podcast to one other person who you think will get benefit from it. And part number two is you need to write us a review, either at uh, Apple Podcasts on their app, at podchaser.com, or give us a thumbs up on Spotify. Or if you're watching on YouTube, give us a wave, Zandra, to everybody who's on YouTube. There you go, Zandra's waving if you're listening. Uh, give us a thumbs up uh, on this episode on YouTube. That's it. That's the Leeds Business Podcast Fair Deal. Sound like a fair deal, Zandra? Amazing deal. <laughs> there you go. Sandra says it's an amazing deal, so you have to do it. You have to do it. Okay, so we were just about to talk about um, your growth capital raise. How did yeah. that come about? Talk, talk us through the process, and and at what point did you think, right, okay, we've got to do this? Um, so a couple of things happened. My um, my co-founder, Mike, um, uh, had, a, had a period of ill health, as did my other co-founder, uh, Ken, and we suddenly had this key man dependency moment where I was like, okay, you know, um, we need to build this team out and I need some people in this business alongside me just in case. There's a little bit of that from being really candid. There was a little bit of that. Yeah. Equally, um, we just hit a point in our sort of ARR where it felt like we could go out and do a series A as opposed to a seed round where we'd get a decent valuation. And also one of our other seed investors, Peter Constance, who is one of our, um, was the founder of Pancredit, you know, had shown interest in seeing if he could get some cash off the table, as did Mike, who had, had a period of ill health. So I proposed, you know, it might be a good time for me to step up. Um, Mike was very happy for me too. So I stepped up as CEO. Um, uh, at that point, it was a case of, well, what am I going to do to build a plan to grow this business? Because it was, you know, I was sales and marketing director, so I was taking the reins. And it just coincided about two or three months after I started as CEO, a plucky guy called Josh reached out to me from PwC and said, have you received my emails? And I said, um, yes. And he says, please, 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 will you join our first tech um, incubator in Leeds? And I was like, oh, okay, well, it's £5,000. I don't really have the time. I've just started this job. I've really got to get my feet under the table and make sure that I know what to do. He, he said it would be the best thing. And he said, but, you know, if, if I could do it because he's going to get in trouble because he doesn't have any other women on the cohort and he really, really, really wants me. And I, and, and I was like, okay. So I joined this cohort actually reluctantly because I thought I didn't have the time. I didn't think I'd learn anything. Best thing I ever did because I suddenly got introduced to the whole world of corporate finance, advisors. I didn't know anybody at CF. I didn't know what P meant or BC meant. I had no idea about the language around investment. I didn't understand what the rounds were about, how they were structured. And, you know, something I really was super green, even though I did an MBO, 
other than basically valuing the IP and as cheapening people out of the business, my understanding of business is predominantly as being, you know, either a startup um, as a consulting business where you're just a limited, it's you and a few bodies and it's a consulting organization, but this kind of complex process investment I knew nothing about. Um, so that really helped give me the grounding of language and introduce me to the people. And it accelerated my timeline because it made me believe actually that we were more ready than I thought we were because we'd spun out of pan credit. Um, there were actually some really quite foundational principles as how we'd built the business that were more mature than the stage that we were at, if that makes sense, because we'd been part of a bigger company. So we were very critical of where we were at and the stage we're at. But actually, as we we brought people in to look at things, they were like, actually, you're, 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 you're more ready than you think. So I went out and looked for um, an interim kind of CFO whilst Mike was stepping down. And that's when I met Phil. And he was actually working for Anna at the data shed. So we've been sharing a CFO for... Uh, the last however many years. So Phil, bless him, has, has been working in two two female data founders in Leeds, God love him, he must have the patience of the saint. Um, and he came in and helped me build the financial model that I needed for the round. And me and him worked together on, you know, the 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 way in which that model would be structured, all the assumptions, and really helped me to understand the model that you'd need to build. And without that, I wouldn't have necessarily been as ready as I thought we could be. So when we actually went to speak to people like Grant Thornton and quite a few of the other, we courted about four different advisory firms to run a process. Um, we had this model, I had a DAG, a basic DAG, and I had a good understanding of the landscape and language having been on the programme, this PwC programme, to feel like I had the confidence to have these conversations and also just know who the players were. Without that, I don't know, think I don't know where to start or even how to even begin to, to approach that. So that was super important. I think any any founder that hasn't been through some kind of accelerator or scale-up program um, that's thinking about raising investment, definitely do that first. Just It's just at least start speaking to other founders and, and people that have been on it. It's really helpful. I must have spoken to about 10 different founders who'd raised money because I got introduced to them through, through having been on this program, which is really helpful. Um, and then Grant Thornton won the, the, um, the competition for who was going to run our process for us. Um, uh, it was, um, I say competition, it did feel a bit like that. I think we were, we were, um, we were definitely in a good place. <laughs> so it was, it was great. Um, and they did a kind of fixed fee, um, arrangement, which a lot of them work on a percentage of the total value of the, the transaction, whereas this was just a fixed fee. So we knew exactly what it was going to cost us, which is great. Um, and then they ran the process end to end and, and they were able to, um, identify the best fit funds for us at the stage that we were at that are most likely to fit with our business. So I think we went out to about 100 with our IM, um, which was um, great. Um, and we pitched to, I think it was about 20, 25 in the end um, that we short we shortlisted that down to. Half were sort of in London, half were in the north and across the north of England. Wow. There's well, <laughs> there's about ten different topics in there that, that I want to I want to pick at those threads. Um, I'll try and I'll try and do them logically as you said them. <laughs> um, the, the first thing you mentioned was, and, and you sort of stepped over it quite quickly, was the step up from sales and marketing director to CEO. Mm. How did that feel? And 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 did you have any training on it? Any, any support? You know, it's quite a big step for somebody. <laughs> Was that just like here's a change of business card? Off you go. <laughs> I didn't change my um, job title on my email for three months, and I had a personal coach at the time that I was working with. I'm trying to say, I don't know why. I just don't feel I'm ready to say I'm a CEO yet. I let a massive, massive imposter syndrome. I know people talk about. It. I had massive imposter syndrome. I just wasn't sure what that really meant, you know, because it was still a small business. We were still only like. 20 people at the time, 15, 20 people. We'd grown a lot, you know, comparison to a starting point. But um, I, yeah, I just kind of, you know, no coaching by, but I, this was a personal coach that I'd sort of um, been working with for a while just to to help me sort of navigate my own mindset around some of this stuff because I just wanted to lean into the to the opportunity. Um, so now, um, yeah, you, everything in this role has been, <laughs> has been learned through speaking to other people mostly yeah. you know speaking to people that are a few steps ahead of you on the journey um being vulnerable enough to say i'm struggling with this and giving people the opportunity to kind of support help advise direct point you in the direction of somebody else that might be able to give you um a leg up 
Um, it's I think it's amazing when every CEO I speak to, you know, just how much everyone sort of falls into this and, and starts to work out the job as they go and their responsibilities. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The fiduciary duties bit's a funny one because I think, you know, I don't know how many founders kind of really understand that until they get into a process and start dealing with investors because, you know, when it's you and your business and you don't have a lot of investors around you, you do have a lot more free reign, a lot of ability to kind of just flex around. And when you've got a lot more structure and governance around you, you, you suddenly feel that lack of experience, I think. And that's when you need yeah. to start to really lean into getting more support. And certainly when I got P into the business, there was a lot around the investment agreement and articles of like, wow, I just, I need to really fucking understand this very, yeah. understand this stuff because there's a lot more, um, there's, there's a lot more at risk here, both for the business and me personally. And that's when yeah. you realize the gap between the investment community and, and you as a founder, sometimes it can feel like quite a big gap. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you mentioned. I mean, obviously, I work as a as a business sounding board with people, and and I think the first people, first thing people need to do is, is as you said, is sort of hold your hand up and go, "I need some help." And actually, it's not a show; it's not a sign of weakness. It's actually actually yeah. a show of strength because you're investing in yourself by doing it. Um, you talked about the incubator. Um, how? Was that specifically a financial incubator or because, you know, people talk about peer-to-peer groups, which work really, really well and, and sort of basic startup incubators. What, how was it? How was that sort of sold so, to you? So, yeah, so it, it, wasn't, it wasn't an incubator as such. It was more like a, a, a I think there's all these words, accelerator, incubator, scale up. I mean, croaky, what, what, what does that all mean and how are they all different? I don't think anyone's got a proper definition. They're just usually something that runs for a period of time a series of workshops, a peer group that have got something in common, either the stage they're at or the sector they're in. And usually there's founders, right? And in my experience, people parachute into these workshops that are experts in that specific subject that you're there to talk about, learn about, focus on, and that there may be an opportunity to pitch to investors and possibly that organization, Accelerator Incubator, will possibly participate and take a percentage of your business should you raise money at the end of it or give you some cash. Whatever you call it, that's kind of the same thing. This PwC wasn't putting any money in. They weren't. They were asking. They asked us to pay five thousand pounds each to be part of the program, which is what we did. Um, and there wasn't any percentage of the business or anything around that. But it was just a period of time and a series of workshops and a peer group. And we were all um, technology businesses, so pre-Series A in Leeds, um, in Yorkshire, actually, because uh, we did have a business from Hull, Gary Gallen from Radar. Um, he's really successful. So some really interesting uh, shield from white label loyalty and people like that, you know. So there's a, there's a real cohort of us at the time. Um, Phil from Audacia was on it, so you know I could name the some of the the people that you'll know well that were on that first cohort. Um, but the main thing that I got out of it was um, meeting the wider advisory investment community and 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 them knowing who I was. And that really started um, a two-way communication yeah. that helped me to learn and go, I don't understand what you're saying. So one moment I remember, I, because I was on this, I got invited to FinTech North to sit on a panel to talk about investment. And I remember loads of people coming back up to me at the end because I sat on this panel and, and I basically said, I have no idea what any of this means. Series A, Series B, no idea. What's a VC different from a P? Mm. Um, you know, when you talk about rounds, are you buying me a drink or are we doing business here? I don't know. And I literally <laughs> talked in this way on this panel to a room of hundreds of people and because it was FinTech North, there's a lot of people in the community from the finance and advisory committee came up and were like, you know, it was just so refreshing to hear someone talk. Because, well, it's true. And I just meet so many yeah, people yeah. like this. So I think getting that communication going so I could learn fast, so I could do what I needed to do, probably accelerated my ability to, to raise money. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, I, you're, you're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. I think part you mentioning uh, imposter syndrome, and I, I suffer from the same thing, a lot of it comes from the bullshit that goes around that that people talk about that yeah. people go i don't understand that and actually you go you don't need to it's like a bollocks so <laughs> well, think, this is what I it mean, actually means <laughs> this, what it really or this means. is what it actually means yeah yeah yeah, yeah. um yeah. okay so just talk about the uh the um actually you, you talked you know 100p houses so so you stuff you know 25 pictures was it a case of you having the choice at the end of saying we'd like to go with you, you and you, or was it the other way around? No, I mean, and to be fair to GT, they did a great job of controlling a process. The one thing I learned is create competitive tension. 
control the timeline. You get your IM out. You tell them they've got to let you know when they're going to be, if they go, if they want to have a pitch from you. And then you tell them they've got this day or this day. And you invite them to a place that you control. So in London, they came to Grant Thornton's offices and the same in, in uh, Leeds. So they came to us and we backed them off. So they would see the net one PM's coming in as the other one came in. So you create a nice amount of capacity. And they did a brilliant job of that, to be fair to them. And then obviously controlled, you know, heads of terms have to be out and, and back in by this timeline and, and then feedback on those heads of terms. So we got um, six offers, um, which was great. And we sent out heads of terms with our, you know, no liquidating preferences, things that I didn't understand how bloody scooby do about before this process. And now I entirely have, I remember, um, I remember uh, uh, Jim Whittaker, what a love, um, with a whiteboard with me and Ken repeatedly drawing kind of what new co and other kind of organizational structures. We could do it this way or do it this way. And then drawing lines on graphs, talking about liquidating preferences and where shareholders sit on cap tables. And it was just, you know, it was an education. We, we, we were learning about some of the gotchas actually, and having a partner and an advisor that can help you understand, well, you probably don't want this. So you're better to ask for this now whilst there's competitive friction. And then the people that participate know where they stand on those terms and not try to negotiate those through the process. So that was really, really powerful as a, a process to learn about how you control the dynamics. So yes, we got six offers. Um, we went back and get feedback and said, well, yeah, you need to improve on valuation. You need to improve on the options you need to, and so on. And then we narrowed it down to three. Um, and the, the, the funds that were in the process that offered, it was Barangaya, YFM, NVM as was, uh, Mercia, um, Maven, and, oh, I can't remember the six. That's bad, isn't it? Um, YFM, the people that were in our business, obviously, um, and YFM. So those are the, those are the six in the end. And they were interesting, all, um, northern based funds. So even though we pitched to all the London funds, um, none of them, None of them actually made an offer. And what we realized, and certainly going to London and pitching, was I had to sell the city first. Does it have a tech scene? Is there any digital sector in Leeds? Are you going to struggle to hire talent? So I, I, didn't, I didn't have a pitch slide for Leeds, but I should have done because at the time yeah. there was a real lack of understanding. And most of the tech investment was in the city, and it's all generalist investors in the north of England. So we didn't, it's changed now. It's changed a lot since 2019, going back a while. Um, but, you know, at the time, and I think that was the barrier. It was just like you could see their eyes glazing over. I don't want to get on a train up to Leeds to do board meetings, you know. You could just <laughs> see that they were, you know, these these um, investment directors of these houses in London were like, anything else, only 25, 25, we don't want it. And I think as a female founder, there's an extra barrier there as well. There's just that little bit of extra. So you're in Leeds, you're a female founder. I'm not confident about the tech scene in Leeds. We'll walk away. I've got enough deal flow in London. I don't need this deal. Whereas in the north, there was less deal flow and they knew more about the business and the history and obviously the people that are involved. So, so yeah, so we're in, a, we're in a good position, which meant we were able to negotiate good terms. And the seed investors that cashed out because we did about 2.1 million growth cap, um, growth capital being the money that you're going to use to fund your business for growth. And secondary, which is the money you comes in and goes straight back out to investing they didn't take all their money out and um, so they kept some of their shares in but that was to to give some of our original seed investors some of that money back that they'd originally gave with their return on it and there was two million of that so it's about two a uh, 4.5 million round um and the valuation of the business was um you know uh, well above where the seed investors had said as long as you get this valuation Sandra, then we're happy with it and i got them a lot higher than that yeah. so everyone was very happy fantastic fantastic and and Two things you mentioned there, I think, leading to, dare I say, two of your soapboxes, which is female founders and, well, three probably, the investment community in the north and Leeds as a tech city. So let's let's pull on those threads. Um, female founders, you're a, you're a big drum bang, a drum banger and supporter of that. Talk to me, talk to me about that. Yeah, I think once you've experienced something, I, I mean, I've worked in the tech sector my whole career, and I'm so used to there not being many women in tech, that you just kind of get used to it. Um, and I just thought, well, and, and it was always so sad, right? The tech sector is such a new industry, and yet it's still got this terrible problem with um, diversity, which is something else I think needs addressing. So when I went to the investment community, and I was just like, God, it's worse here. <laughs> it really did feel like the investment community had less diversity. And what I mean by that is, at least in tech, you had socioeconomic diversity, I felt. You had lots of people from different backgrounds and different cultures in tech. But in the investment community, not only was there a lack of gender diversity, but it was often public uh, public school educated white men. 
that's all I was speaking to. So the demographic, the diversity was even narrower. So this kind of networks, or you know, we've heard of this old boys network said, but people were doing business with people that they knew. And it was a very closed community and it felt very hard to kind of reach into. So I was, and that really struck, you know, took me back just going through the process as a female founder. And I did experience some of those things that, you know, is often talked about and like, you know, just really felt that they didn't get me. And that was the, the you know, the, 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 the curtain came down, you know, you could see it in their eyes and you think, and, and it felt like, it felt like gender. It felt like that often. And so I, I, I experienced it. And, and then the more I sort of talked to people about it, the more I, I run a network called Lean and Lease or have done and set it up like nine years ago now. So I was surrounded by women talking about their experiences in various contexts. But the more I started to talk to other female founders, um, the more I really felt that there was a problem. So um, I started to get involved in the agenda. I'm now deep in it, <laughs> deep, deep in it. So I've been on the, the um, I was invited to be on the Government Task Force Women-Led High Growth Enterprises. Uh, Anne Bowden, the founder of Starling Bank, invited me to join her task force. I've been on that for nearly two years. It comes to a close in March. We're just finalising our report, which has a series of recommendations. And I've, pilot- I've piloted a programme here in Leeds, which is all about how do we um, address this problem? Like 2p in every pound goes to female-founded businesses. That hasn't changed in 10 years. Um, it, it is incredible just how we've not moved the dial. And even though we can have all the data that shows that women are um, starting business at, at fastest rate, a, fast, a faster rate than men now, even though we can show that young women have the same appetite to be an entrepreneur as young men do, you know, even though we can show that data, we're not moving the deal. And there is something going on in that barrier, this, this barrier in access to capital and, and diversity. And I won't go into lots of the detail here, but what we're really trying to do is a practical intervention and, and roll out a series of regional boards where a, a city will take ownership of looking at how we accelerate capital into diverse founding teams, starting with gender, because it's the, the place to start. And actually, you've had on your podcast, uh, Alex Craven from the Data City, and we're using Data City's data, so two, two, two data companies in Leeds, Alex's data, our technology is a, a data visualization tool to empower cities to understand their pipeline of female founders so they can better serve them with things like the PwC accelerator where I don't have Josh ring me up going, please come on because you're the only woman. We're actually, they're ringing up and going, we've got a female founder accelerator in the city aimed at your stage of growth with investors that are looking to invest in you that is really targeted and tailored to funds that are motivated to invest in female founded businesses that are the right type investors because you can spend a lot of time with a lot of wasted conversations and copywritten conversations with funds and investors and and BD people from from VC and investment firms that they're just not the right stage and the right fit and as a founder your time is so precious so the better we can curate um, that access to those networks for women who predominantly have less access networks than men because they are less likely to know an entrepreneur. They're less likely to know a high net worth that can give them money. They don't have the same access to friends and family. There's a lot of reasons why women sort of step, start from a lower rung as a ladder than, than men do. So, yeah, I think the more I've got to know about this agenda, the more I'm in it. It's hard not to be super passionate. I've also become an, um, an Ada Angel. And so Ada Ventures is a fund aimed at that very early stage VC firm, very focused on diverse founders. Um, I've just um, I've concluded three investments through Ada in female founded businesses in Leeds. I'm just about to conclude my fourth. I hope they're all businesses on your podcast in the next few years because they're amazing female founders, all of tech startups. Um, so it is about just getting some of these networks in motion and, and making sure we curate some better support um, so that I'm not sat on a panel going, I have no idea what you know Series A and Series B is, and uh, that fun female founders sitting there going, "I know what I want. I don't need to speak to," and and <laughs> and are really really clear. So yeah, sorry. I'm, yeah, I am very passionate about it. It's really hard not to be because I feel like I can make some change. <laughs> I think so. It, uh, I mean, you're absolutely right. You know, as, as the father of two daughters, um, you know, I want them. And it's interesting, um, Jane Slimming from Zeal, uh, who was on uh, one of my earlier uh, episodes. Um, she's fantastic, but she mm-hmm. she said she said to me very interesting. She said she, she came from a, a a situation where she was told she could be anything she wanted to be, and I said that to my girls, and I think we should be in that situation where female founders should be in that situation that there shouldn't be those barriers. And yeah, from a listener's point of view, how can how can men, middle class white men like myself, support the initiatives you're doing? Actually, we need allies. 
every stage, every gender, every background, because it's the only way we, we, we change anything. And, you know, the initiatives which are starting to get off the ground, it, you know, it needs everyone to just get behind them, share them, you know, introduce people into them. Um, uh, you know, Lifted is what we're launching with uh, Helen Oldham and Jordan Darg, um, who, uh, you know, so that's going to be the vehicle that we're using to kind of get this off the ground. And, and we'll be doing that from March. Um, and, and yeah, we just need, and, and everybody, anybody's interested in supporting whether they want to come speak to the female founders, but, you know, we're looking for people that can talk about their stories, so they can learn from them, whether they're interested in investing, whether they can provide advisory support, coaching, you know, you know, the more support, the better. Um, and we just want to curate that in a way that gives them access to the right people at the right table. There's a, I had a great mentor, uh, Matthew Scullion of Matillion in Manchester, a 5.1.5 billion um, valued uh, SaaS business, you know, great to have people like that in your corner. Um, and he always says it's stage commensurate support. But what he means is it's the right support, the right people at the right time. And it's it's the right time. It's making sure we we make sure that the, these these founders are speaking to the people that are most appropriate for that stage of growth and support. And that can, it's a very noisy world out there. If you don't understand it, you can spend a lot of time working it out. So, yeah. <laughs> You've mentioned a couple of things there, Ada and Lifted. Um, there will be links in the show notes uh, to both of those. So anybody who wants more information on that, um, they're in the show notes. Um, I think it's an opportune moment now to, to talk about your how-to because one of the things that I think female founders found difficult is, is getting out there and just physically being out there and networking and, and putting themselves, put their heads above the parapet. You know, it's hard enough as a bloke to do that. It's even harder as a female. So... Zandra, take it away with your how-to. Uh, so I, I, there's a few phrases I, I use a lot when I'm doing um, sessions or workshops. And, you know, shy bands get now to right? Good Yorkshire Northern phrase is that. So, you know, how do you how do you go and ask for something you want, but you might be afraid to ask for it? Or go and do something you want to do, but you're afraid to do it, right? And then the second thing that I often say is, you know, growth begins at the edge of your comfort zone, right at the edge of your comfort zone. So if it's feeling hard, it's probably where you're probably doing the right thing, right? And so if 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 you if you know that there's something you want to do, how how do you start? Um, and it's always, I mean, God, you hear these phrases like eating elephants, don't you, in bite-sized chunks and all that kind of stuff. But it really is true. You know, it's just taking the thing you want to achieve and breaking it down into what are the little things I can do every day to, that makes me feel a bit uncomfortable, but at least gives me some progress. You know, and sometimes it isn't walking into a networking room on your own. You know, find somebody who's been to that event that you know and get them to walk in with you. Um, meet them for a coffee beforehand. Have a chat about the event. Let them understand what you're looking to achieve from it and then walk in with a, an idea to speak to maybe three people. And don't worry if you've only spoken to three people. Don't go around thinking you've got to exchange business cards, lots of people. If all you've done is have two or three quality conversations and, and then what do you do after that? You know, it's okay to follow up on LinkedIn and say, you know, we said this, we, we shared that, you know, here's a follow up. So it's just chunking some of these things down and, and getting yourself out there. I think women are really good at actually being vulnerable. We're also very, very good at um, sharing our networks. We're very generous, in my experience, at sharing our networks. So sometimes it can be easier if you're in a room of people or you're going to ask for something, is to go up to, you know, it's okay, go up to the woman, <laughs> chat to them, if that's more comfortable for you. And um, Don't try and push yourself into spaces and places where you know it's going to be really difficult. You just won't do it. So um, find some allies that can help you on that journey. Do a little bit of preparation. Don't expect too much of yourself but at least take the first step into each of those things. And uh, just as an example, um, my daughter would be playing football with um, a boys team for years <laughs> and I'd set up networks, I'd set up a business and I've never kicked a football in my life. And my daughter came to me and go, come on, mom, let's set up a girls football team. I'm like, oh my God, okay. I have no idea where to start, you know, what do you do? And and she had this real belief in me. It's really hard when your daughter looks at you and goes, well, let's go set a football team. Okay. Um, and we did. And, you know, we flyered the schools and we turned up on the first day and we had three girls. And, and then I realized I probably need to learn how to be a coach. And I went on a coaching course. And, you know, seven years later, it has been one of the most rewarding and unbelievably amazing things I've ever done. If you'd have asked me 10 years ago, if I'd have been a football coach, I'd have laughed in your face, never played football, never been sporty in that regard. Um, but watching the impact of grassroots sports and the confidence of young girls and young women and building that wider network and community around them outside of their school groups and how that serves them in later life and the power of those networks when I look at what happens in 
investment community and the business community. Now, men have often had the benefit of these kind of rugby teams and football teams, these networks and circles they've grown up with and relationships where they've won together and lost together. And that's really powerful, that connection. You know, we need the same for young girls and young women because those networks will serve them through the rest of their life. And I didn't go into setting up a football team with that mindset. My daughter asked me, I thought, I've got a clue what I'm doing. But having done it, I just see all of these layers of references into everything else I care about. And and it's just because I kind of went, well, how do I start? Where do I start? Well, let's fly to schools. What's the worst going to happen? So sometimes it's just, you know, you can tell yourself, can't you, that you, you can't do something. I'm not, I'm not a footballer. But it doesn't mean you can't help a group of girls to to love football and learn football and, and, and grow together. So a lot of it is self-limiting beliefs. And a lot of it is just is trying to solve the problem all at once and not taking little steps. And I know that sounds quite generic, but honestly, that's worked so well for me every time I've had a problem <laughs> um, to just go, right, I just chunk it down and do those little things. And, and actually, well, every time you do something, it's always a lot easier than you imagine in my experience. You make these things a bigger problem than they really are sometimes. Is it all right, Phil? <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, it's so true. It's so true. You know, stepping outside your comfort zone, just by by nature of just stepping outside your comfort zone is uncomfortable. But once you've done it, it's then part of your comfort zone. You go, yeah. right, okay, what do we do next? And and you're right, small steps, small steps each time, you know. Fantastic. Absolutely brilliant. Um, before, before you go, um, we ask all our guests for a shout-out. So give us a shout-out for Leeds company you want to give a shout out for um so anna sutton who has exited her um business at data um uh, data shed uh, last year and gone straight back into the startup community with her data refinery SaaS startup she has not paused for breath um she's been a, a peer a huge amount of support for me over the years and great to have another female founder in data that we've been able to kind of share the journey of. But I have just so much admiration. She sold a business, got straight back into building another tech business in the, and it's called a data refinery. So yeah, definitely one to watch. Okay, there you go. Um, links to Anna and data refinery will be in the show notes. Zandra, it's been absolutely fantastic having you on. Really enjoyed it. I hope all our listeners got some uh, useful stuff on I'm sure they will. So thanks very much. Thanks, Phil. It's been wonderful. Thanks for listening to this episode. I hope you found it interesting, inspiring, and of use. To make sure you don't miss out on any future episodes, please subscribe to the show. Go on, do it now. Do it now before you go off and do something else. Thank you. Much appreciated. Oh, and don't forget our fair deal. See you next week.